Well, good morning. I'm Jason. I'm the facility director here. Uh, if you're new, then welcome. But uh, you've done that thing where you walk in, didn't get the normal guy. So apologize for that. But uh, all right, we'll carry on. When I was in college, I started attending the local chapter of an organization called the Baptist Student Union. And it was at Truman State. And it wasn't long, I guess, that they saw maybe some leadership potential in me. And they asked me to come join their team. And I remember walking the halls of the building, and there was this board that had all these pictures of their current leadership staff. And I'll tell you, up to this point, I had had a handful of moments where I had done what's called leading someone through the prayer of salvation. And if Baptist uh, culture is familiar to you, you know that means I was kind of a big deal. <laughs> so I don't know much about what kind of outreach ministry they had. But in my extensive, I don't know, maybe a year as an evangelist, if you will, I noticed this picture of their current outreach leader, and that to me he looked more like a nerd. And this was back in the 90s, before being a nerd became a cool thing. And I remember saying that one of the first things we were going to need to do is get rid of that guy. And I was serious. I mean, look at him. No one... He's going to get saved as long as that guy is in charge. That's what I told him. Well, fast forward a couple years, and it turns out that that guy became one of my absolute best friends. And it turns out that he regularly attended this group called the Freethinkers, which according to their charter, they were a group of atheists and agnostics determined to leave faith to live in a world based instead in logic and reason. And I think my friend respected their cause. He did. But as a person of faith, he just saw some things differently. But he's also smart, very smart. And he became a beloved member of their group. Fun fact, the Freethinkers would debate the local Campus Crusade for Christ Charter on campus every year. And my friend, when they would do this, he would actually join the Campus Crusade side. Because if he's going to have a debate, he wanted a debate from the perspective he actually came from, which was the faith perspective. He was such a formidable opponent that in future years, the Freethinkers organization said they would not continue holding the debates unless he decided to come back to their side. He decided to moderate the debates, sort of a middle ground. It's a testimony to his commitment, first, to kindness and sensitivity. Now get this, you can't make this up. Eventually, they named this person of faith the president of their atheist organization. <laughs> and I got to personally read the letter from the past president talking about how much my friend had influenced all their lives and gave them the possibility of faith in the midst of logic and reason. Now that is a pretty impressive resume for outreach. And in my haste, I was going to kick him off the team because I didn't like the way he looked in a picture I saw. Luckily, more sober minds were in charge and that never happened. Now this is one kind of funny, kind of gross, kind of funny example of how me thinking I'm a know-it-all and how my hasty decisions have almost led to disaster. But the list goes on and on of all the times I have passionately determined 
the world should be one way, whether it's in my marriage, demanding that we do certain things, demanding that the kids grow up a certain way or reach full maturity now, or with my friends, demanding we start doing things a certain way now, or in my church, demanding we need to start this new ministry or do this thing, and we got to do it now. And in my politics, demanding I know how to solve all the world's problems, people just need to get on board right now. When things are not going the way I need them, I demand immediate satisfaction. And I tell everybody, otherwise it's all going up in smoke. And my friend from Truman State is not the only casualty or near casualty that's occurred along the way. Here's the thing, I know I'm not alone in this. Pastor Garrett put out a poll a while back, and it struck me. Because I remember in a sermon, he mentioned that the number one concern in this congregation, number one concern in your life is anxiety about the world. The feeling that it's spiraling out of control, and if we don't do something about it right now, it's going up in smoke. The phrase I hear a lot is this, you know, the world's on fire. You know, it's like casual conversation. Well, you know, the world's on fire. I don't know. Is it? Has God already abandoned us to the flames? Is it time to take up swords against one another? Sort this mess out on our own? I hear that a lot more than I'd like to these days. Is it time to give up on our friends? Time to part ways? about our marriages? Have we just had it with the kids? I, 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 yeah, I have a couple times this week. What about our church? Is it time to jump ship? Is God done with this place? Or what about the church as a whole? I do agree that these are trying times. And with you in that poll, I'm prone to anxiety. But trying times is not new. It's not a new concept in the scriptures. And we're going to go through that today. And we're going to try to unpack what is God's word in untrying times. We're going to try to align our lives to that. No matter what outbursts you've had this week, no matter where you find your heart, We're going to realign this morning. We're going to come back. We'll do it again next week. We'll come back and we'll do it again in a week after that. We're going to start with a fairly well-known piece of scripture. In fact, which usually indicates it's actually pretty central to our understanding of the faith. We're going to go to Luke chapter 12, verse 22. This one you might have heard. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, and what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They've got no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't spin or labor. 
Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, one of Israel's greatest kings, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into a furnace and burned up tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. This is God's first word to us in the anxiety or in tough times. But I do want us to notice, he doesn't just say, being anxious is wrong. Quit being anxious. God's not giving some moral ultimatum here. That's what we do to each other. God comes in and says, know your worth to me. Do you know how important you are to me? More than the ravens, more than the lilies of the field, clothed like a king, I value you. And he wants that knowledge to be the foundation that brings us comfort and peace. They say that becoming a parent can help you see God differently, and that is certainly how it has played out for me. One of my sons, uh, he likes to control his surroundings. Uh, it's, it's so extreme that it's actually kind of precious. He tends towards anxiety, and he has fears that people in general, his parents included, are somehow holding out on him. He's so worried about missing out that he demands all kinds of satisfaction right here, right now. And one day I had this really fun surprise planned. And we were going to go out and I was going to take him to Sonic, which to him is this five-star restaurant. And we are going to buy all the junk and I was going to you know, set up games, we are going to play video games, we are going to do all this fun stuff. Basically, it's going to be a surprise yes day to all the stuff that we normally say no to because we consider it bad form. Well, he didn't know this, of course. And along the day, he asked for some small piece of candy. And I was like, oh, son, hold up. I got, I've got something way better planned. Well, he was insistent that I tell him what was to come. But I wanted it to be, you know, surprise. Well, he started to get anxious. Got this look on his face. And then he just started completely melting down. Because he could not imagine that I would have plans for him that could be any better than that piece of candy. It got so crazy, he even told me the following. He said I was mean. He told me that I must hate him. And he stomped down the living room and he said, I'm going to go get that piece of candy anyway. It escalated very fast. And we have to wonder, is this not how it is with us and God sometimes? We are convinced that he might hold out on us. We're convinced he just moves too slow. There's nothing good that can come from the situation, man. Everything's up in smoke. God is not with us. We assume he's mean, that he hates us, and we just go get our own candy right now. It's very difficult to imagine that something better could be in store if we just waited on him. Well, let's continue with our scripture at verse 35. It tells us to act accordingly out of this foundation of value. It goes on to say this, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Be like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good 
for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Now this is Jesus telling a parable, a story. And when he does this, he's meant to tell us that there is an image here. And to ever really grasp what the image is saying, you kind of have to stop and go line by line and try to picture the scene, picture all the moments. So let's do that. Let's put this scene together. We have these servants here. We've got a master off at a wedding banquet. He says the servants are to be dressed, uh, what does it say? Dressed, ready for service. And when I picture that, I think of, I don't know, maybe some rags, right? Or simple clothing, work clothes, right? Simple, modest, so that somebody comes and starts giving some marching orders, you can get something done. But interesting, in this scene, he doesn't have them actually out doing any work. He's just got them waiting at the door. Be ready, but then come and watch. Then the next line takes this very radical turn. I think we can get our heads around the servant's clothes part. Here's where it gets crazy. It ought to hit us that way, I think. I think Jesus meant it to hit that way. He says this. This is when the master arrives. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. So let's linger there for a moment. The master shows up in rags, the same rags that I picture them wearing. And he tells them, hey, put your feet up. Let me wait on you, hand and foot. Now there's a master you don't see every day. Is that a king? Sounds like he's holding out. This is not the only time this image comes up in scripture. It's quite readily available. It's all over, and it challenges us to ask, what is our picture of God? When someone says Jesus is coming, do you picture someone in rags, propping your feet up, getting you some appetizers? Is that the God we project to this world? Or do you picture him holding out on you? You decide to go get your own candy. Because here is Jesus giving us a picture of what God is like. And it is not one that comes back from the wedding banquet, stumbling in, fat, drunk, and happy. That's what the leaders around us do. And I don't know why we keep throwing in with them. He's not a master who is large and in charge, demands our respect, fancies himself some kind of influencer. Now, the master is one that shows up in rags, says, oh, my servants, they're waiting for me. Put your feet up. What can I get you? That's a good picture. It's right from the scriptures. And while this is very good news and quite a humble picture of God, it is not to be taken lightly either. In fact, it comes with a warning. Verse 45 says this. But suppose the servant instead says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces 
and assign him with a place among the unbelievers. All he wants to do is serve us and value us more than the flowers clothed like kings. But if we decide to go get that candy ourselves, not caring who we harm in the process, and if we are so certain that our way is right, when in fact it may not be, there are consequences. And that same servant king, dressed in servant clothes, wields the authority to judge. And he will do so. He will judge what's going on back home. Reality, I think, is this. This is a complex world. And there are fires. But it is not just on fire. It actually contains both fire and water. Both light and dark. Both storm and calm. Both joy and grief. Both life and death. And I have not seen the secret to tip the scales. Not right here, not right now. But I do trust in the heart of the servant king who comes to prop our feet up and make things right. And I've also seen people live out of this hope here and now. I have seen good fruits from this body specifically. And I think we're best when we're patient, when we're discerning, not reactionary. When we're looking for where God has begun a work. And we go and we participate with him in that. In humility and generosity. I think that's when we do our best stuff around here. But we understand that it is not all right around here. It's not. But it's not all wrong either. And we have to make do. We have to make do with each other. And we have to make do with both the light and the dark in this world. I've seen us do our very best work as a church when we realize that at any given moment, God is standing with someone here in this congregation experiencing great happiness, a promotion, a new home, game winner, a new child. And at the very exact same moment, at any moment in this congregation, he's standing with somebody in desperate pain, disease, death, divorce, lost wages. And rather than rushing in with our own often damaging solutions or judging the situation through our very limited perspective, we do our best when we wait and discern and stand in the presence and come to this table and trust that the presence of the Lord will give us guidance. James 5, 7-8 says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, 
being patient with it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring light to things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In Romans 8, 23, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. We must learn to watch and to wait. When our families are struggling and we want to get there and we want to fix it and control it and probably become crazy people along the way, we have to instead learn patience and waiting, trust in the one that's come. When our jobs are not all we hoped and we feel the need to react or gripe, push ahead, maybe do something unethical, we have to instead learn patience and waiting and trust in the one that's to come. When we have disagreements with friends, we can't seem to see eye to eye on all sorts of very important issues. We still have to learn patience and waiting. Trust in the one that's to come. When we see something or someone that offends us, we want to let them have it. Demand their respect. We instead have to learn patience and waiting. Trust in the one that's to come. When we feel abandoned, like God is holding out, when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, no matter who we have to hurt along the way, maybe even bound in our values, we must instead learn patience and waiting, trust in the one that's to come. I recently came across this quote by Father Richard Rohr, and I think it's brilliant. It summarizes today's scripture way better than I ever could. So I want to close with his words. Come Lord Jesus means that all of Christian history has to live out of a kind of deliberate emptiness. A kind of chosen non-fulfillment. Perfect fullness is always to come and we do not need to demand it now. This keeps the field of life wide open and especially open to grace and a future created by God instead of ourselves. This is exactly what it means to be awake, as the gospel urges us. Aware, alive, attentive, alert. These words are all appropriate. When we demand satisfaction of one another, when we demand any completion to history on our own terms, when we demand that our anxiety or any dissatisfaction be taken away, just as it were, why weren't you this for me? Why didn't life do that for me? We're refusing to say, come Lord Jesus. We're refusing to hold out for the full picture that is always given by God. Come Lord Jesus is a leap into the kind of freedom and surrender that is rightly called the virtue of hope. The theological virtue of hope is the patient and trustful willingness to live without closure, without resolution, 
can still be content. Even happy. Because now our satisfaction is another level. And our source is beyond ourselves. We are able to trust that he will come again just as Jesus has come into our past, into our private dilemmas, into our suffering world. Our Christian past then becomes our Christian prologue. And come Lord Jesus is not some cry of desperation, but an assured shout of cosmic hope. Let's pray. Lord, may we not doubt our immeasurable worth to you. May that be our foundation. May we not act out of fear or anxiety. Give us discernment there. But out of patience and humility and love. Lord, may you find us alert and watching and waiting for your return. And may we wrap our heads around your character the master that tells his servants to prop up their feet and be served. May we respond with our lives only in ways that honor and mimic this picture of you, doing the same kind of charity as we gather each week in generosity and love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.